Well, good morning. You guys doing all right? It's good to see all of you. You are looking very good today. Looking very good today. Hey, we are in the fourth week. Is that right? The fourth week of a series that we're calling Christ Alone. Uh, it is a six-week exploration of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is sort of the epicenter of theology, but not just theology for theology's sake, but information by means of transformation. In other words, we're not just passing along information on Sunday morning. Uh, we're hoping to, that God, in, in the truth of the gospel, and the power of his word, will transform your life uh, as we walk through it together. So uh, I want to give us just a quick review and then uh, jump right into this morning's message. Uh, I am excited about what God has laid on my heart to share with all of you uh, because I believe that when we gather together each and every Sunday, we're not gathering together uh, just because that's what we do every week or out of habit. I believe that every time we gather together, uh, the power uh, for transformation and the potential for transformation uh, is right here. So I encourage you to lean in, uh, listen closely, and listen to what God has to say to you. My prayer every time I preach is that you wouldn't hear me, that you would hear the Holy Spirit through me. That I am simply God's instrument for how he wants to speak to you. And I believe that, that, that he wants to speak to you today. Uh, so let's. Um, so let, you can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 and we'll be there in just a little bit, but I want to first give us a review. Uh, Paul starts Romans chapter 8 by saying there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We live in a world that loves to condemn us based on all kinds of criteria, but those who are in Christ stand before God as not guilty. Therefore, we have no condemnation in this life. It is a beautiful thing. Paul goes on to talk about the flesh and the spirit and these two things that are at work. The flesh is sort of this sinful way of living our lives where we ourselves are the general over our lives, where we make all the decisions, we call the shots. But the life according to the Spirit is where we dethrone ourselves or our sinful nature. We allow the Spirit of God to indwell us, come into us, and serve as the general, where He is now leading us and guiding us, directing us, convicting us. And Paul says that the life according to the flesh leads to death, but life according According to the Spirit of God, it leads to life. Not only life like out there, somewhere out there, eternal life, in that I get to heaven when I die, but life right here and right now, abundant life that God has intended for us. And last week we talked about the new Exodus. And how all of Romans, especially Romans chapter 8, Paul points us back to the exodus of Israel. That is the nation of Israel, the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, we pick up the narrative and we find them uh, enslaved in Egypt. They are under a power and a control that they cannot defeat or defend themselves against. And that is the oppression of Pharaoh, the oppression of the nation of, of Egypt. But God hears their cries for freedom and rescue by raising up one man, Moses, and then Moses uh, leads them into the promised land, but they find themselves now a free nation, and they are, they are set free from the, the grip of Pharaoh and the power of Egypt, but freedom isn't always easy, and so even in the midst of freedom, they find themselves desiring the slavery that they once had because we love what's 
familiar, even if it hurts and even if it's destructive. And what we did last week is we said, isn't this a picture for our own very own lives that we ourselves have been enslaved by a power that is greater than what we can defeat or defend on our own? And that is the power of sin and death in our lives. But one man, the man of Jesus Christ, has been raised up in order to rescue us and we have been set free. That's Paul's message, is it not? We are free in Christ. We're free from guilt. We're free from condemnation. We are now free from the grip of sin in our lives. That doesn't mean that we'll never ever sin again. It simply means that the the seat of our heart no longer belongs to sin and ourselves. And so, but man, it's hard to live free. And it isn't that Christ hasn't, has, hasn't wonderfully made us free. It's that we have a hard time living in that freedom. And so we find ourselves on a journey toward the promised land, ever making a step toward full redemption. That's where we're at, and that's where we've been so far. If you've missed one, if you have missed a, a, a sermon as part of this series, you can go back and you can podcast it. You can download it on, your, on all of your electronic mobile devices. And so I encourage you to do that to catch up. Um, what Paul does after giving us this, this uh, scope of Egypt is he says, he, he, he compares these two realities, the reality of, of slavery and then the reality of adoption. And what he says after kind of reminding us of the exodus and the exodus that we ourselves are now living in, he says, the spirit that you have received, capital S, the Holy Spirit that you have received has not given you a spirit of, uh, will not lead you back into Egypt and give you a, a spirit of fear, but rather the spirit that you have received has made you sons and daughters of God. It's a beautiful picture that Paul is painting for us. And my hope and my prayer is that as we've walked through this together, that you have experienced freedom to a greater degree, that you have realized the transforming power of the gospel. And my hope and my prayer this past week is that many of you have been reminded that you are deeply loved by God and that if you have come to know him and made a decision for Christ, you are now a son or a daughter of God himself. For the spirit that has been given to you has not been given to you to lead you back into slavery and therefore back into a life of fear but the spirit has been given to you to lead you into a life of freedom where we are sons and daughters of God. And so my hope is that we will live well as free people. Are you with me? That's pretty heavy stuff, right? Uh, So so I want to kind of get us on board here today. What I want to talk to you about today is a message of hope. I want to talk to you about hope today. And some of you may, may have come in here as a last ditch of hope. And you say, you look at all around you and your life and, and everything seems to be crumbling. And you say, I don't have any hope. I am absolutely hopeless. And your one last ditch effort is to come to church. We are glad you're here today. And I believe the word, the, the, there is a word for you from God because I want to talk to you about hope. Now, as we kind of jump into our discussion about hope, I want to give us kind of a working definition. Now, this comes from a lot of different resources, many of which I have stolen, okay? <laughs> but this is kind of this, this idea of, of what is a working definition of hope. If we could sum up hope, what does it really mean? And hope is essentially this, the person or the thing that holds your expectation of the future. The person or persons 
or thing or things that holds your expectation for the future. And what I want to argue today and what I want to point out is that hope is a lot like a ladder. Okay, many of you were like, what is this ladder doing in the middle of the sanctuary and why is it blocking my view of the screen? It's here on purpose today, okay? We didn't just forget about it. We didn't just turn a blind eye to the ladder in the middle of the sanctuary, okay? Hope is like a ladder. And that is to say that you and I, whether we're conscious of it or not, are placing our ladder of hope and we're leaning it up against something in this life. And oftentimes, let me give you some examples of the kinds of things that are often holding up our ladder or perhaps a better way to say that is the things in which we're leaning our ladder against because all of us have a ladder of hope in our lives and wealth is one of the things that we often place our hope in right in this culture and in this world wealth has such an incredible uh, power over us and we think to ourselves if I just had more wealth, if I just had more money, if I just had a certain amount in my 401k, if my banking, if my checking account at the end of the month wasn't completely empty, then I would be all right. I'd make it in this life. I'd be more successful. And so essentially what we've done in those moments is we have leaned our ladder of hope up against, up against the accumulation of wealth. Other times, we we lean our ladder up against accomplishment. That if I can just do something great, then people will notice me. Right? Some of you feel absolutely invisible. Despite all of your efforts in your circle of friends, in your family, you feel like no one notices me. I don't count. Nobody loves me. And so we hope for the future by leaning our ladder of hope against accomplishment. And we think to ourselves, if I could just do something great, if I could just do something out of the ordinary, then my family, my friends, my colleagues will all begin to notice me. They'll recognize me. They'll give me that attaboy or that pat on the back that I've been longing for so deeply in my life. And so oftentimes it's wealth. Other times it's accomplishment. Students, let's be honest, sometimes your ladder of hope leans up against good grades, right? It's like all of my expectations and hopes for the future are dependent upon this grade in this class. And midterms are coming up, right? And you're thinking, I've got to do well on this test. And we lean our ladder of hope against good grades because if they're high enough, then I'll get that scholarship. If my grades are high enough, then I'll get that job. If I have a certain GPA, then I'll be more positioned. Now, a lot of that is true, but does your hope lie there? Is your ladder of hope leaning up against the grades? And we also have to be honest that sometimes we lean our ladder of hope against looks. And if I just look good, I could make it in this world. And so we spend time and money and resources doing all that we can to look good. Now, it's good to look good. But is your ladder of hope leaning up against your ability to present yourself physically? If I just looked good enough, he would notice me. If I looked good enough, she would call. Right? And so sometimes not only is it our looks, but we lean our ladder of hope against relationships. That if this relationship would just work out, then I would be okay. 
Some of you, you've graduated, and the pressure is now on to get married, buy a house, start a family, get the white picket fence. And you're thinking to yourself, if I just found the one, then my life would be all right. If I could just go and get married, then, that would, then everything would be better. And so we've leaned our ladder of hope against this person, this thing, this ideal. And we've said, you know, if, if she will just call me back. Hold on, that's from my era. If she will just text me, okay? I got to be current with the times. If she'll just text me back, you know? If she'll just send me a Facebook message, then everything will be all right. And we're, we're leaning all of our ladder of hope against that one relationship or that ideal of relationships. And once I get married, then I'll be happy. Sometimes in political season, we lean our ladder of hope on a political candidate, right? Man, I'll tell you what, if so-and-so could just be in office, this world would be fixed. This country would get back on track. And we lean our ladder on a man or a woman of politics. Sometimes, especially when we're younger, we lean our ladder of hope on athletics. That my ability to perform well on the court or on the field is what brings me my value. And that already, man, I'm only 16, but there's some talk of pro. And I got all this pressure. I got some scouts coming to check it out. And we lean all of our ladder of hope on athletics. You know, many times we lean our ladder on these types of things and then we spiritualize it. Now, hold on, because this is going to get personal. I'm going to pull into your driveway and open the garage code because I already know it. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to pull in the garage. I'm going to open the garage code. I'm going to make my drink and sit down in your living room because here's what we often do. We place our ladder of hope on those things and then we pray that God will make those things secure. God, if you would just help me protect this wealth. God, would you please help her to text back? I don't care if your Holy Spirit just takes over her and sends me the text message directly. I need to get a text message from her. You know what I'm saying, all right? So God, just please secure that ledge on which my ladder of hope has been placed. Keep my wealth secure. Help people notice my accomplishments. Help this politician to really turn this country around. It's good. We should pray for our leaders. But what I'm saying here is that if we place our ladder of hope on those things and then ask that God would secure them, our hope is misplaced. And that's precisely what Paul talks about in this passage that we're going to look at today. Paul's message is that we have been brought into a reality. The reality being the gospel. We have been brought into a reality that is much sure. Much, you can bank on it and you can hope on it much more than these things that we typically lean our ladder against. We've been brought into a reality for those who are in Christ, made a confession for Christ, accepted him as Savior. We are brought into the kingdom of God, this reality that is much larger and much surer than anything that we could ever place our ladder of hope upon. And so what, what is Paul? Paul is essentially saying is don't ask God to secure the thing that is actually that you're actually placing your hope in but put your hope fully in him make him the thing on which your ladder of hope actually leans so let's read Romans chapter 8 
verses 18 through 25. 18 through 25, you're already there. You've turned there in your Bibles. I want to read this to you. And what Paul does is we actually end with hope based on all of these other realities. I wanted to start with hope and kind of go backwards, okay? So we're not going to hear a lot of hope language until right at the end of this passage, but it actually frames everything that Paul is talking about. This reality of hope and that we have sure things to place our hope in, and that is Christ himself, or Christ alone, as we've named our series, okay? Romans chapter 8, 18 through 25, follow along with me. It says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration... Not by its own choice, but by, the one, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. And we also know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up until the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. As we wait eagerly for our adoption and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We wait for it patiently. The foundation of this message that Paul wants to share is this. It comes out right at the beginning of our passage. Our current sufferings or our current struggles, our current challenges, whatever it is in your life that you would say, this, I am suffering because of this, this is a challenge to me, this is difficulty, this is a struggle, those are nothing compared to the glory that we will be revealed in us. Now hold on. The glory revealed in us How could Paul possibly talk about you and I experiencing glory on any any level? Isn't it right that all the glory belongs to God? Isn't it right? I mean, we've just sung about that, that we give all the glory to God, that even in the times that I see myself doing well in this Christian life, I don't take on the glory. I'm simply a conduit for the glory of God so that people can look at my life and and the faithfulness that I've received in Christ through the Spirit and be given glory that moves on to God. The glory never stops at me, we would say. Right? The glory never stops at me. I'm always just a conduit that is passing the glory on to God. So how can Paul be so presumptuous as to talk about you and I receiving glory? What's up with that? Right? Well, Paul, again, has just taught, finished talking about in the previous passage that we've, been, we've received a spirit of adoption, that we would be made the sons and daughters of God. And what is the implication of that? Paul says that as you and I are brought into the Spirit of God and that we are brought into the adoption and are made sons and daughters of God, that we are therefore made heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And so this whole talk about us receiving glory is a way of Paul expounding on what it means to be co-heirs with Christ or heirs of God. He's essentially, remember, we've kind of broken this up in, in six nice, neat little packages all tied with a bow, right? 
But this is the, the thought and the stream of thought in Romans chapter 8 and in all of Romans moves right through. So we haven't left behind what we've just talked about. Paul is then expounding on what it means to be heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And so, if we are co-heirs with Christ, we can say that all that belongs to him belongs to us for those who are in Christ. Did you know that today? All that belongs to God, if you are in Christ, belongs to you. For you have received the spirit of adoption and been made the sons and daughters of God and the co-heirs with Christ. And so all that once belonged to him now also belongs to us. Christ, through the resurrection, has been glorified and now rules over the world. And so our glory is a way of talking about how we will one day rule over, that is manage or steward, all of creation as was originally intended. In other words, Paul does not point us to sort of pie-in-the-sky cloud cars. He says that when all things are made new and our glory is, re- is revealed, we will be co-heirs with Christ, co-creators with Christ, ruling, stewarding, ordering, managing over all of creation with Christ. Now, I know that's a brand new thought, but stick with me. In Genesis 1, chapter, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, God commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful, to multiply, and then to rule over the earth. And the, and the word rule there is more properly understood, not rule as a, as a sort of an evil ruler would then exploit all the resources, but rule over, in other words, manage or steward because the creation has been given to care for us, to feed us. All that we have comes from creation, so we don't exploit it so that it can no longer care for us, but we rule over it, we manage it, we order it so that it can keep on providing for us. And providing resources for us. And so what what Paul says is that one day, as co-heirs with Christ, we will be brought back into this rule or this management or this steward with Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. So what we're talking about when we talk about our glory is not a quality that we may or may not possess as much as it is this active quality. It's a way of obedience. Ruling over the world as it is brought, as the world is brought to its flourishing state. Does that make sense? Yes, it will on Monday morning. Tomorrow morning, all of you are going to wake up and say, That's what he was talking about. Okay? All right, so stick with me. Stick with me. It is essentially a way of of saying, uh, or it essentially means to set in glorious authority. Over the world. One day everything will be put back to right. All of creation will be renewed and redeemed. That's precisely what we talked about last week, right? Where the, where the Exodus does not end with the wandering in the wilderness. The Exodus ends with reaching the promised land. And if we take that same sort of framework for our own lives, while right now we find ourselves sort of wandering and doing our best to live as people who have been set free, we will one day experience the full redemption of God both ourselves and all of creation. And so all of creation will be put back to right. It will be renewed, redeemed, recreated, made new. And in this bold new world, you and I are not just floating around on cloud cars, playing harps and singing hymns. But you and I 
will be co-creators with Christ. And ruling over him as his heirs. And not ruling over him, ruling over the world as his heirs. Now, for those of you that are thoroughly confused, let me bring in a commercial. Okay, we're going to take a commercial break. We are going to talk more about this in, a, in our next series that starts in just a couple weeks called Alpha and Omega. And what we're going to do for three weeks is talk about the endless connections between the beginning and the end. All three weeks, we're going to be in Genesis and Revelation. I simply cannot wait. Okay, so if you're thoroughly confused, stay tuned. End of commercial. Okay. That's good. You got to build those in, you know. You got to sneak them in, all right? So, we're sort of in this middle ground, right? But Paul makes it clear that the transition where we will one day be in all of the glory as, as reaching our, our place uh, as co-heirs with Christ has not yet come, right? Paul is clear about that because he talks about Groaning, The creation is groaning. Uh, we ourselves are groaning, longing for this redemption of all things, longing for everything to be made new. So while we look at that and we say this is the sure future that we hope for and that is there and it's solid, it's in the bank, it is not yet something that we experience in all of its fullness. And so Paul talks about that and makes that clear by talking about the groaning. And first he says the creation is groaning. And that is the effects of sin at the fall in Genesis were so devastating that creation itself was damaged. Okay? We cannot narrow the scope of the problem of sin just to ourselves in the same way that we cannot narrow the scope of salvation just to ourselves. Sin affected the entire world, ourselves included, but creation included, and therefore salvation is not just for us, but it's also for all of creation as well. Genesis 3.18, the ground is cursed. This is right after Adam and Eve eat the fruit and disobey God for the very first time, and sin enters our world world. Genesis 3:18 the ground is now cursed and will produce thorns and thistles. So every time you see a thorn or a thistle, you can say, "Oh man, that's sin just running rampant in this yard." That's what I say to my yard cuz I got way too many weeds and I'm like, "Sin is just running rampant in this yard. I need a sprinkler and some fertilizer to bring the gospel to this yard." You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Okay, that's what I need in my house. So if any of you have fertilizer or know how to install some sprinklers, you come on and you talk to me after the service and we'll, we'll bring the kingdom of God to my house together, okay? Are you with me? Yeah. Hopefully some of you will answer that call, all right? The creation itself is damaged. Now, Paul says that we ourselves are sort of groaning in this anticipation of the renewal of all things. We, too, are waiting for our adoption to be made complete. We are adopted. We are set free, but not yet in all of its fullness. All of these things have not yet been brought to their final end. And so we sort of live in this in-between time where there's this this hope of, of glory And yet we see that in this world there is so much hopelessness and brokenness. Right? I mean, the question becomes, how can we possibly maintain hope in a world that seems so hopeless? The housing market stinks. Our 401k is losing money every day. The global economy is tanking. If you've leaned your ladder of hope against athletics, 
There, there probably will come a time or has already come a time where you'll face injury. And you'll find that that ladder was leaning up against a wall that was cracked and was crumbling. If you've placed your ladder of hope on a relationship, there's a good chance, especially if you're young, that you've experienced the brokenness of that relationship. She broke up with you. He broke up with you. And you realize that your ladder of hope was misplaced. I'm not saying that your relationships are going to end. I'm saying that there is a time in our life where we experience the brokenness of that, of that misplaced hope. Because we never think about hope, do we? Until our hope is not fulfilled. We never realize that our hope was placed fully in getting married and one day having kids and doing all of this until she broke up. And then we, all of our hopes come crashing down. All of our expectations come crashing down. And we realize in those moments that our, my hope has been misplaced. And so whether it's grades and we bomb the test, whether it's a politician who wasn't elected, the oftentimes the thing in which we place our ladder of hope or lean our ladder of hope, it comes crumbling down and our ladder falls. And so the question is, how do we maintain hope in a world that experiences so much hopelessness and so much brokenness? How could we possibly do that? I mean, if we are right in the middle of wandering in the wilderness, just like Israel did, doing our best to live as as free people because we've already been set free, how are we supposed to do that? How are we supposed to live in the in-between time? Well, in the midst of suffering, of which Paul was very familiar, he points us to this greater reality, the gospel and the glory that will be revealed in us. In other words, he points us to the renewal of all things and the role that we have to play in that. And so how do we live in the wilderness but in anticipation of the promised land, right? I think that's our, our role, is to live here in the wilderness in the in-between time, but always be pressing toward the future reality that is certain, certainly laid out for us. Does that make sense? Do you guys ever find yourselves hoping in the reality of all things made new in the midst of brokenness? Man, there are times when I do. There are times when I just think this brokenness is absolutely out of control. And the only thing that I can lay my ladder of hope upon is God himself who will one day repair this place. Make this place all brand new where I myself and my body will be fully redeemed and yet all of creation will also be fully redeemed. The question then, if we hope for that, and I hope that you hope for that. The question is, how do we live well in the in-between time? How do we maintain hope when it seems to be so fleeting in our world? And I want to give us a little bit of of clues on how to do that. Paul says, in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of these challenges, in the midst of this brokenness where we we want to hope, but we find ourselves lost in hopelessness, he points us to the greater reality. The sufferings that we now are experiencing are not worth even comparing to the glory that we'll one day experience and the glory that will one day be revealed in us. Essentially what Paul is saying is that your problems need a little bit of perspective. Okay? 
Your problems need a little bit of perspective. Because sometimes, if you're anything like me, you have a little problem that you treat like a big problem, and it steals your hope. Let me give you an example. A few months ago, I bought a Blu-ray player on sale. Correction, on clearance. Okay? And I saved all my pennies for it, and I paid cash for it because we don't do debt, and, and, and it was all in the budget. It's all good, you know. I, I was honoring God in that purchase, and I bought me a Blu-ray player. I won't say the brand so that I don't smear mud all over it, but it was a Vizio, okay? <laughs> I bought me a Vizio Blu-ray player with Netflix. Yeah! All right? Six months later, the thing is like always losing our wireless network, and then the, the, we're playing a Blu-ray and the audio gets one second behind the video. And it's like a bad Chinese karate movie. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just trying to watch a good movie and I can't understand anything, you know. And so I'm getting more and more frustrated with this thing and all this stuff. So I decide, I contact Vizio and I'm like, there's a firmware update for this thing and it won't update the firmware. I get a server error every time. Oh, and while I have you on the phone, the audio doesn't work and it always loses my network. And, and so I went and I exchanged it and I got a little better one. But let me tell you, in that moment, I was real frustrated. You guys know I'm a technology guy. I'm like, this thing will not connect to my network and I know it ain't the network. <laughs> let me tell you, That's a high-class problem, right? My Blu-ray player won't connect to my wireless network. Your problem needs a little bit of perspective. That's a high-class problem, okay? I mean, that that is not a big deal. And I should not have gotten nearly as frustrated with that as I did. But now I got a Panasonic one, and I'm all better, you know? So it's all good. But sometimes our problems need perspective, right? Because we take little problems, we turn them into big problems, and they steal our hope. But you know what? I, I don't want to diminish the challenges and the sufferings and the issues that some of you are facing. Because while I may have a Blu-ray player that doesn't work quite right, there are many of you who are facing challenges and difficulties and suffering on a level that absolutely, uh, absolutely is, is valid for you to begin losing hope. I mean, you've been hurt in ways that I can't even begin to understand. You've been betrayed in ways that I may never know about and others may know about. And so I don't want to diminish your problems today because sometimes the challenges that we face indeed do have this weight to them. And, but I would still say that the, when we have even problems of that weight, it is still beneficial for our problems to have a little bit of perspective. That if we'll place this issue in light of Christ who has died for us, who has been resurrected, who has given us a spirit of adoption, that we are sons and daughters of God, that all one day all things will be made new. If we place our problem in that light, I believe and I know from personal experience that that problem will begin to be lost in the shadow of the goodness of God. Our current sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And if we can do that, then we have hope that is genuine and authentic and never shakable. Are you with me? Paul is essentially saying that our problems 
need a little bit of perspective. And I don't know I don't, if you have little problems and you're turning them into big problems or if you really do have big problems. We can all benefit from Paul's message here of allowing our problems to have some perspective. One of the second ways that we can live sort of in this in-between place of gaining hope in the midst of a hopeless world is to anticipate our glory, that is our management, our ordering, or our stewarding over all of creation. We can anticipate that glory over all of creation by taking responsibility over the bit of creation over which we have the most control, our body. Do you see what Paul talks about this earlier? He says, if by the Spirit we will put to death the misdeeds of the body. In other words, we can prepare for our role by taking seriously the management, the stewarding, or the ordering of the part of creation which we have been given and have absolute control over this, our own flesh and blood. That if we will take control over this, we are practicing for the role that we will play in ruling over all of creation, in being co creators with Christ. You see, heaven is not boring. It's active. Where we are all the time working with Christ, not equal to Christ. Don't don't misunderstand me here. Christ is still God, and we're still not. But we manage and we order and we co-create with him. We're invited in to the family. And if we can manage our bodies well, then that's a great way to practice for our future job. If we will, by the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, put the misdeeds of the body to death, start getting control over this thing, and you'll begin living well for the future. I don't know what that means. I mean, one of the, one of the very direct applications is, is sinfulness that's carried out with the body, through the body, stewarding this body well, eating and working out. I mean, there's all kinds of things that could go into that. But we've, given, we've been given this to manage and steward. And so we can practice well for our future role by stewarding this well. I know that may seem like to some of you like a little bit of a leap, but if this is truly our role at the renewal and, and the redemption of all things, then we ought to practice for that with the one bit of creation that we do have. Are you with me? So we live right now in anticipation of a sure future. Despite the groaning, there is certainty that we, because we see evidence of it. Now, Paul goes on to say some things that can be confusing. He says, For in hope, in this, into this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes, what they already, hopes, hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, We wait for it patiently. Now, some would say that we can therefore now never experience or we can experience nothing of God's new world for which we will rule, over which we will rule with him. Uh, For God's purposes have always been sort of carried out through humans, right? Some would say we can't experience God's new world on any level 
Because Paul says we can't hope for it if we already have it. But I believe that what Paul is saying here is not that we can't have glimpses of it, not that we have ev- don't have evidence of it, but that we don't yet have it in all of its fullness. We can't hope for it because, uh, well, we would hope for it because we don't yet fully have it. If we already have it, there would be no reason for hope. Are you with me? So Paul is not saying here that we cannot experience any of God's new world and the kingdom of God breaking in, but he's rather saying we don't yet have it in all of its fullness. And so... We wait for it patiently. But let me say to you today today, that hope is not the same as patience. If we believe that hope is nothing more than patience, it sounds a lot like this. You know, this world is all going down the toilet to hell anyway. We just need to make it through until we're taken to a better place. That's what hope reduced to patience sounds like. Hope is so much more than patience. Hope is assurance that leads to patience. Hope is assurance that leads to patience. And it sounds like this. I consider that my present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in me and all around me. Hope is the assurance of things to come, which leads to patience. But the Greek here isn't even patience. The Greek here is eager anticipation. It's not just patience. It's eager anticipation. In other words, patience is just sort of this passive thing where I'm waiting Anticipation is an active thing where I'm going about and working and living right now in anticipation of that future. And so it's eager anticipation that when wealth dissipates, when politicians disappoint, when looks disappear, when my marriage is in disaccord, when I'm given the disadvantage, my ladder isn't leaning on those things because I've been saved into a hope that leans my ladders, ladder surely on the hope of God, the hope of Christ, and the things that are sure to come. So it doesn't matter what dis you experience in your life. You can know that your ladder is not leaned up against those things. It's leaned on something far greater than any of those things. So we don't yet have our full redemption. But since we see pieces of it, since we see evidence of it, we anticipate it. We live actively in that direction. If this is our sure future, then how do I live right now in anticipation of that future? That is the key. And so... What happens is when our ladder of hope is placed on more sure things, on God himself, on the sure things that are to come, on the kingdom of God as it's breaking in today and giving us hope because we can't have hope today because of the evidence that we see when we put our problems into perspective. And when we do that, we begin to see gardens come out of the dust of our life. We begin to see life in the midst of chaos. We begin to see that every flower is rooted in the dirt. And so our present sufferings aren't even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. My challenge for you today is to think and discern where your ladder of hope leans and lean it 
surely on him who will not let you down, who will not leave you, and who is right now making all things new. He's making me new. He's making you brand new. We've got to make sure that our hope is in him.